there, you'll see our Death to Life logo, and you just click on it. Or if you have the Restore Church app, you click on the bulletin, and you'll be able to see the announcements that I made. You'll be able to see the uh, songs that we just sang, so you can look them up on Spotify, and you can also uh, have some of my notes that, that I'm preaching from. They're right there in the, uh, in the app. I want to tell you a story about Ethel and Fred. Ethel and Fred, they're 45 years old, and they, have, they go to a state, the state fair. Now, if you come from any other state than North Carolina, uh, it's just worse. That's just a given. But North Carolina has a state fair. Kentucky has a state fair. Uh, you know, rural states, we have state fairs. I don't know about the rest of y'all, but get with it. And so Ethel and Fred, they go to the state fair. They're 45 years old, and there's this new exhibit. They've never seen it before. They see a big sign that says, plane rides, $50. Fred sees it as soon as they walk into the state fair. And he says, Ethel, we have got to go to this new exhibit. We've got to see what's about. And so they stand in line. They watch the plane take off. And so he says, Ethel, can we do it? We're 45. Come on. We're at the prime of our life. And all the people who said 45 who are 45 years old said, amen, 45, the prime of your life. So he's like, we're at the prime of our life. Come on, let's do it. Ethel said, ah, I don't think so. I don't think so, Fred. It costs $50, and $50 is $50. So Fred tucks his chin, they walk away, they leave the exhibit, but he doesn't get out of his mind. Ten years later, they come back to the state fair. They're 55 years old. And Fred says to Ethel, Ethel, they have the same exhibit, and they haven't changed the price. It's still $50. We're still in the prime of our life. Let's go on this plane ride. $50, that's it. And Ethel, she's thinking, she looks at it, and she says, ah, I don't know, Fred. It costs $50, and I don't think we're going to do it because $50 is $50. So Fred tucks his chin. He walks away. He's like, all right, it's fine. 20 years later, they come back, and they bring the exhibit back to the festival. Fred cannot believe it. He says to Ethel, Ethel, we're 75 years old. We are still in the prime of our life. And the cost of the plane ride has not changed. It's $50. They stand in line, and the whole time in line, Fred is trying to convince Ethel, can we please just go on this one time? It's the last opportunity we'll probably get. Can we please, please, please? They finally get up to it. Fred thinks they're going to be able to go on this plane ride. And Ethel says, Fred, I just don't think we should. The cost is $50, and $50 is still $50. Fred knows the secret of marriage by now, and it's your wife is always right. And even when you're right, she's right. And even when you're wrong, she's right. And even when she's wrong, she's right. And all the men said amen. And all the wives said amen. And so he says, all right, fine, Ethel. Well, the pilot heard their conversation. And the pilot comes up to Ethel and Fred, and he says, all right, look, I, I heard what you guys were talking about. And we've got so much business today. I'm going to take you up for free. But here's the rules. You can't say a word while we're up there. You can't make a peep while we're up there. You don't make a sound. If you do, I'm going to charge you the full $50. Well, no problem with Fred. Fred jumps right in, and Ethel finally comes to grips with it. Okay, I'll do it. So they get into the airplane, and it's a nice, smooth ride. 
silence through the whole plane. Then the pilot starts to make sharp turns in the airplane. Now he thinks for sure he's going to get these old people to say, make some noise, you know, something. Nothing. They don't make a peep. So then he starts to do rolls and flips or whatever you pilots like to do for fun. And he starts to do all of this stuff. Well, finally, they, they've been up there for 15 minutes and there's no noise. So they land the plane. The pilot gets out and he comes up to Fred and he's like, that was amazing. I thought for sure you guys were going to make some kind of noise or say something. And, and Fred says to the pilot, he said, I was going to say something when Ethel flew out, but $50 is $50. <laughs> I love that story. And you've got to tell that. When you leave here, you've got to tell that joke to somebody, all right? And pretend like if they say, man, that's a good joke, just say thanks, okay? I don't want anyone to judge me based on the jokes I tell during a sermon. But what's important to Fred Nethel at different times was $50. Today, we're going to look at what's important to Jesus in the last moments of his life. If I were to say to you, if I were to tell you that you were going to, to die tomorrow, what would you spend today doing? Even more specific, if I told you that a group of people were going to come into your home at some, and at some point tomorrow they're going to rip you away from everything you're comfortable with in your everyday life. They're going to rip you away from all of what's normal and we're going to lead you to your death. What would you do? Now I'm surveying the room and I know most of y'all in here, you're preparing. You're getting ready. You're going to barricade the door. You're going to unlock the gun safe. Right, and you're going to call the boys, and we're getting ready. Not we. I'm not. Y'all are. <laughs> don't call me. Uh, no, I guess you can call me. I'll, uh, I don't know, bring some soda or something. Um, some of y'all, you're going to take off. They're never going to find you. You're going to change your name. You're way smarter than they are, you know, that kind of thing. Some of you are going to spend the next couple days living it up, blocking everything off of your bucket list, but I know it's kind of like a crazy scenario, but what, what we see when we get to John chapter 17 is exactly that. Jesus is preparing for a group of people to come and take him away from everything he's been comfortable with the last three years. Well, I wouldn't say Jesus' life was comfortable, but they're, they're going to take him away from the disciples. They're going to lead him to his death in just moments. Remember John 13, the last supper, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. John chapter 14, he teaches them that there is eternity. There's more to this life than here. He's preparing them. The end of John 14, he says, let's get up and go. John 15, he starts to teach them while they're walking through like this garden. Oh, look, there's a branch. I am the vine. Y'all are, you see, like y'all are the branches. And apart from me, you're nothing. In John 16, he's like, dude, and in just a couple moments, they're still talking, he's still teaching. He says, in just a couple moments, I'm going to die and I'm going to be led away. And you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And last week we talked about the difference between happiness and joy and pursuing joy over happiness. Well, finally, Jesus gets to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we hear what I would like for all of us to associate with the Lord's Prayer. Okay, you guys, when you hear the Lord's Prayer... We often, he, we often think of the King James Version, our Father who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Least not, uh, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Least not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And some of y'all, for thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. No? We just said that part in peewee football, and I was confused why we didn't say that part at church or the Lord's Prayer at church, it, whatever. But you've heard that called the Lord's Prayer. Here's what, here's what I think we should do as a church, just as a learning moment. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, teach us how to pray. And Jesus uses that as a model for prayer. So let's call that the model prayer. Because when we get to John 17, we see the heart of our Lord Jesus. Let's call this the Lord's Prayer. One author says, you never know someone more deeply than when you hear their desperate prayers. If you were around Restore Church for our first year and year and a half, uh, we talked a lot about desperate prayers and how God always, always shows up when we are the most desperate for him. So we're going to see that in just, uh, in just a moment. Um, John chapter 17, verse 1. Well, let's read verses 1 through 5 together. Verses 1 through 5 together. After Jesus said this, uh, after Jesus had just said to his disciples in this world, you will face trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Then he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those uh, you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world even began. Um, John chapter 17, verse 1 through 5, the first thing we learn from the Lord's Prayer is the purpose of Jesus' life. It's obvious as we read through that the one thing that Jesus is praying for is, to glor is that his life glorified God. The purpose of Jesus' life is to give glory to God. All right, can you say, all right, I know it's tired, you're thinking about lunch, but just stick with me for a minute. Will you say glory? I knew it. I all right, that was like lopsided. I told the first service, I was like, second service ain't going to do it. They just won't. They'll just look at me. But you did it. So I'm a liar. Thanks for that. <laughs> so as we talk about glory, let's define it for a minute. Glory. Here's the definition of glory that we're going to work with. Praise, honor, or, dis or distinction extended by the common consent, by, by the group, or something that secures praise or renown. When's the last time you and I in a normal situation, not at church and not in our prayers at home when we use our religious language. Y'all know what I'm talking about. We change our language when we pray. When's the last time in a normal situation you thought, man, I really want to work to give God glory here? Is God getting glory from this conversation, from this television show that I'm watching, from the way that I'm handling this scenario? My mom is a lieutenant in the Salvation Army. Uh, the Salvation Army is a form of the Methodist Church, but they're more structured. 
they call their pastors lieutenants, and, and you can work up through the ranks. They, uh, their, their churches are called cores. Um, and their motto, I think they're talking about changing their motto, actually, but their motto right now is doing the most good. They're really a great organization for helping the community and those who, who need some help. Well, when you go to school for, um, like, when you go to school for ministry, when you graduate, especially, like, in, in the, church, the school I went to, when you graduate, no one's telling you where to go for ministry. There are some ministry opportunities. Maybe you've got a job opportunity, but you send out resumes, right, just like normal job. In the Salvation Army, when you graduate, you get commissioned. You get sent right away. But at their commissioning ceremony, which is their graduation, they walk across the stage, and they're given their diploma. But before they do... Instead of putting their hand like straight up like this with their flat hand, they point uh, to the sky because they want to give glory to God for everything that has been done and everything that will be, be done. To God be the glory seems to be a cliche in our culture, but it needs to be a common phrase of a disciple. And what I'm, what, what I'm, I guess what I'm getting at is this. With our definition of glory... What, what you give glory to shows your purpose in life. So with our definition of glory, what gets our praise and gets our attention is, shows us what our purpose is in life. Let me illustrate. When you come home every day from work and you throw down your bag or your briefcase or your stuff, what do you start talking about to your spouse immediately? Man, my job sucks. I hate work. I just want to retire on a beach somewhere and chill with Roger and Fish. I know that's probably what all of you say. And that would be awesome. So let's do it. Um, you know, you just, you, you come in and, and then you just start talking about work and you can't stop thinking about work. And then you sit down at the dinner table and you, you still can't stop thinking about work. And, and you complain, blah, 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 whatever about work. Do you talk more about work and complain more about work than you do about God's glory in your life? Because you might be given work glory when it doesn't deserve it. Or, y'all, the best season is coming around. August 29th, Clemson football kicks off against Georgia Tech, and we are going to repeat again, get the Alabama mess out of here. And for six months, if you're giving glory, more glory to Clemson football than the Lord, let's get together and repent together. But, look, I've got friends who their whole day is influenced whether their sports team wins or loses. More so, are we giving glory to God even in the middle of the loss of a loved one, or the loss of a job, the tragedy that strikes our family or sickness? About a month ago, we found out my mom, well, about two months ago, we found out my mom had uh, some kind of lump, some kind of cancer, tumor, or something. We waited and waited and waited for the results. And a couple weeks ago, we found out my mom has stage three breast cancer. Two weeks ago, she started uh, last Monday. Oh, no, it was this Monday. This has gone so fast, y'all. This Monday, mom started uh, chemo. She's going to do chemo, chemotherapy for four months. Then she's going to have surgery, and then she's going to have four months of radiation. Uh, my mom is a clown. She loves to joke. She makes jokes about inappropriate things that shouldn't make jokes about, like breast cancer. But you, everyone grieves different, right? And so she's making, if you want some comedy, follow my mom on Facebook as she's 
doing her chemotherapy sessions because she thinks she's hilarious. I don't think it's funny. Um, Every time I talk to mom, I talk to her Tuesday, and and if if you've ever experienced it or you've seen people, chemotherapy makes people so sick and and, and just changes them a little bit. You know, they really can't recall. And even after one treatment, I was talking to mom, and she's just sick. She had to go back in, get an IV. It was not fun to talk to. But I said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to hold it together. I'll, I'll, anyway, that doesn't matter. Um, but uh, I just, mom just stopped, and she said, Eric, that's what my fa- family calls me, they call me Eric. And mom said, Eric, no matter what happens through all this, God will get glory from my life. And my mom is totally in love with Jesus. And she's totally obsessed with God. And through her cancer, I believe her, whether she, whether she kicks this thing in the tail end, which she will, or, or not, God's going to get glory from, from my mom's life. For Jesus, he was obsessed with God getting all the credit, with God getting glory. glory. Mark tells the same story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says that Jesus, in Mark, he tells the story that Jesus falls down And he starts to beg God, God, please let this sacrifice go to somewhere else. Can you please not make it me? He doesn't even give God a chance to answer. And he says, but even if you don't, nevertheless, the Bible says, let it be your will and not mine. God, you receive glory from my life. I think for a disciple of Christ, we have to repeatedly in our life just say God's glory. Um, let's keep going. Jesus keeps praying in, in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I'm going to read, a, we're going to read this whole section, verses 6 through 19. So just kind of stick with me. We'll pause, but uh, we'll, we'll walk through it when we're finished. Um, Jesus says this uh, in verse 6 I, revealed, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours. You gave them to me, and they obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted him. They accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they will still be in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except for the one doomed to destruction, so the scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I I say these things while I still live in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of this world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you, rep- but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by what is true. Your word is what is true. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. 
for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. A couple months ago, Aaron and I celebrated. So in five days, four days, in four days, Aaron and I will celebrate our 10th anniversary. And uh, we're killing it. We're doing awesome. Uh, she loves me more and more every day, but that's easy. Um, a couple months ago, we went on a cruise, though, to celebrate our 10th anniversary. Uh, we were trying, you know, counting our chickens before they hatched, but we figured we'd make it to August. Um, and we printed off like a checklist that you can get offline for what to bring. Uh, go on a cruise, you can't really text each other, and so take sticky notes. You go somewhere, you just put a sticky note on the door of the wall. You're welcome. It's so easy. And then you know where each other are. It's fun. But there's a lot of like little checklist things to, to take on a cruise. But then one of the bottom things says, uh, and prepare, for, prepare at home for an emergency. I'm like, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> what it means is, what's going to happen to your home if an emergency happens while you're at sea? What's going to happen to your stuff, your money? Who's going to take care of your kids? And so we had to write up a letter that says, you know, so-and-so will take, it's like, Aaron, you write that letter. I can't do it. I am, you know, I'm going to intentionally forget my sunscreen so I can get sunburned. You know, that's what I'm going to do. You write that letter. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing. For the last three years, Jesus has protected his disciples. He said that he's protected them. He's led them out of chaos. He's protected them emotionally. He's given them a system, a relationship system for when he leaves. He's done everything he's, he's done everything that he's possibly could to protect these disciples. He tells God, God, I have done everything. I have kept them with me. But can you now, once I'm gone, can you protect them? Protect them by keeping them together. Protect them by by uh, making my joy complete, that they might be like-minded. It's been the conspiracy of the Jews to kill Jesus from day one. And once he's gone, who's going to be their target? I mean, Jesus has been the main event for three years, and now it's going to be the disciples. And so Jesus says, God, can you protect them when I leave? We read those last couple verses. He said, to sanctify them by the truth. Your word is what is true. We learned the, the purpose of the life of Jesus. The second thing we learn from Jesus' prayer is the priority for his disciples. Can you say obedience? obedience? All right. Jesus is concerned and is prayerful about the obedience of the disciples. His prayer is, is that they'll become holy, that they'll become sanctified. Uh, when I used to teach our... our um, our youth group this, not our youth group, but when I was a youth minister, we teach our, our kids this, that there's justification and sanctifi sanctification. Justification through the death of Jesus is just as if I had never sinned. You're justified through the, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You are made right. Sanctification, I would teach our teenagers, sanctification sucks. So let's put those together. Because it's the route of becoming holy. It's the route of, of trimming off all of the things that pull us into sin and, and getting them away. And that's not fun. It's tough. 
But God's prayer is that the disciples will sanctify, or that God will sanctify the disciples through truth. And that's obedience. Um, when I was a youth minister, uh, I got a lot of crazy questions. Um, but man, some of the questions that you would get from these teenagers would just break my heart. Roger, how close can I get before it becomes sex? Because I don't want to sin. So how close can we get before it actually becomes sex outside of marriage? I would get questions like, uh, it's not really sin to smoke weed because this is what it says in Genesis, that God gave us every seed-bearing plant. I know, I've been there. I've used the verse to justify it, all right? So I know. Or, or a teenager will say, I had a 13-year-old say this to me, well, there's not a list of cuss words in the Bible, so how can we even know what cuss words are? It's like, you know what? You're right. Let me shut this door so your mom doesn't hear what I'm about to say to you. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. Don't. I didn't do that. That, was not, that did not happen. <laughs> Y'all, the question cannot be. The question can never be, how close can I get to sin before it becomes sin? For a devoted follower of Jesus... For a disciple of Christ, the question has to be, how far can I get away from that line and protect myself before, you know, how far can I get away from sin? Y'all, sin killed Jesus. And for us to flirt with this line to be like, well, it's not really sin if I do this. It's only sin when it becomes this. My hero died. Not so we can flirt with sin. Now, the goal of the disciple, the follower of Jesus, the Christian, is to become as holy as possible. How about this question? How close can I get to Jesus so that I can recognize when to get away from sin? That's a good way to phrase it. Um, man, I, I've, I have stories about Christ followers who were in ministry. So, you know, you go to Bible college for a lot of reasons, but uh, sometimes for the wrong reasons. But the goal of Bible college for me was to get out. And at, the, at first it was to become a professional baseball player. But there, are, there aren't many Bible college uh, athletes who become pros. There's only a couple. And uh, I was bound to be one of them. Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, young people, to play sports in college, apparently you've got to do homework and go to school. Unless you go to UNC, <laughs> then you don't have to. But... I didn't go there. I didn't go there. Um, <laughs> that was good. That was a good joke. And I don't even like Duke, so that was, that was pretty good. Um, yeah, so you go to Bible college and you meet guys who are like-minded, who are going into youth ministry, you're going into to preaching ministry. And I, you've got guys who love the Lord. One of my friends, man, he, he's like, I'm going to go uh, start a ministry at the bar because I want to win people to Christ. So there's nothing wrong with it. But before long, uh, my, my friend is, is not in ministry anymore and is, is, a, is an alcoholic. I have a friend who, man, he, he started, to, started this other lifestyle and he's not in ministry and can't get off of drugs. And it's because we have not taken seriously the command of Jesus to be in the world, but not to partake and to participate of the world. 
Look, it's a delicate line. I have friends who are not Christians, and I love to be around them because it's refreshing. They don't treat me like a pastor. It's kind of nice. But, man, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult balance because I have to obey what Christ has called me to do. And so there are times I have to say no. Or there are times I have to say yes when no one else is. Or there's time that I have to get away from joking about this type of person or that type of person. Or I remove myself from political conversations. One, because I don't care. But two, because it's just not life-giving. Okay, I care a little bit. I care enough. We'll say that. (laughs) We've got to take serious the the words of, of Jesus here. And it's to his benefit and ours and to give God glory. All right, let's move a little bit quicker to the end of this because there's a little bit of a soapbox I want to stand on on this last passage. Uh, Isn't it nice to know I give you a little yellow flag that's coming up? I'm going to stand on a soapbox. Okay. I don't want to blind anybody. Uh, Look at the last verses of this passage. My prayer is not for them alone. I, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So Jesus prayed for himself, then he prays for his disciples. Who does he pray for in verse 20? Everyone who's going to believe in the message of the disciples. That's you. And, and that, that's, that's me. Isn't that pretty cool? Jesus prayed for us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. There's that word again. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that, you, in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself be in them. We, uh, we learn from these, these last few verses... Uh, Jesus prayed for the believers. We learn from these last few verses the plan of God's people, the church, the plan for the church, and that's unity. We learn the purpose of Jesus' life was to give God glory. We learn that the, the, um, the purpose for the disciples was obedience. And then we learn that the plan for his people, for the church, is unity. I like to think uh, about this sometimes, about what would happen if Jesus were to walk into Clyde Irwin on a Sunday morning between 9.15 and 11. Or not 9.15 or 11. Uh, Jesus would walk up to our front doors. He'd say, oh, this is nice. Their their signs look good. They got some waving flags out. Y'all saw that when you pulled in? Right in the middle of the neighborhood. I like what's going on here. He'd walk in and be like, wow, some smiling people. This is cool. They're happy. We would, uh, he would see this first time arrow right down the middle of the hallway. And he would say, hey, it's my first time. What y'all got going on? We would give him this, this bulletin. And it would say, you're welcome here. And he would say, well, thanks. I'm kind of a big deal here. <laughs> And we'd give it to him, and he'd open it up, and he'd say, 
well, that's cool, a men's breakfast. I'm a man and I like to eat breakfast. Are you serving fish? And then he would keep going down, an AV meeting. I don't know what that is. I'll skip that. Uh, wow, you guys did supply drives for the school. Man, these are pretty cool people. He'd keep coming down the hallway, and then someone would hand him a cup of coffee, and he'd be like, whoa, what is this? And we would say, that coffee comes from Brew downtown, uh, 1000 New Bridge Street. Not a shameless plug. I mean, shameless plug, no shame involved. They're open from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m., Monday through Friday. Soup, salad, sandwiches, and more. And coffee. Best coffee in town. All right, that's what I would say to Jesus. I'd be like, dude, it's such good coffee. Then he'd come in here, and Jesus would sit on the front row. Jesus would sit on the front row, y'all, on the front. And he'd be like, wow, this music is really good. He'd be, he would say, I love me. This is great. We're singing to me. He would lift his hands and say, all glory to God. You know, um, this, He's like, man, this, this is awesome. And then he, he would sit down and listen to me stammer over some words, and he would be like, I said that. That was me. I said that. You are talking about me. Maybe Jesus would say amen. He would say that's correct. Or he might even be like, dude, you need a little bit more reverence when you preach. Less jokes, Roger. That's what he would probably say. And then uh, everyone would give their life to, to him again because he's right here. Um, then he would snap his fingers and everything would be packed up. We wouldn't have to work hard. And then he would grab one of us and he would say, what is this? I like this, but what is it? And we might say, well, this is church. And Jesus would be like, no, no, this is not church. This is not church. See, when Jesus started the church, when he instituted the church in Matthew chapter 16, his intention was not this. Now, this is a pastor telling you this. This is not what he had in his mind. Now, what we do here is not wrong. Matthew tells us, do not give, or uh, Hebrews tells us, do not give up the habit of meeting together. It tells us to sing songs to each other, to admonish each other through the word and the teaching, to use God's word for, for uh, encouragement and rebuking and, uh, and, and, and preaching. Okay, so what we're doing here is not wrong. It's actually really, really good. But if we call this church, it's just incomplete. Now, the, the church is what's sitting in your seat right now. And, and, and there is no way that you and I can have complete unity by sitting here for 45 minutes or an hour on a Sunday. We just cannot do it. Proximity does not bring unity. What brings unity is us having dinner together and sitting in each other's living room. What brings unity is us having coffee together. And opening up our Bible and talking about real stuff. What brings unity is for you and I to sit down in our living room and be like, Roger, you should not have said that to me. You were not loving to me when you told me that. And you know what someone who loves you will say? You're right. I'm sorry. Hey, spouses, you want your marriage to get better? Say I'm sorry more and mean it. Not I'm sorry your feelings got hurt, but just say I'm sorry and stop. 
You want your families to get better? Parents, do you want to become a better parent? Listen to what your kids say. Check this out. This is a great tool for any kind of conflict, for your marriage, but especially for your parenting. Listen to what your kids tell you. Paraphrase it back to, you, to them and say, is that what you're saying? Because then you're listening and you can't be coming up with something else in your head. You can't have already said no to them. You know, your kid walks in the room, hey, mom, no. Just go back to bed. It's 2 a.m. For us as Christ followers, if we're going to commit to doing what Christ has asked us to do, we have got to commit to unity. As the pastor of Restore Church, if you are committed to division and fighting, if you are committed to yelling louder than someone else, there are better churches in Jacksonville than Restore for you. This is not that church. This church will not divide over the 2020 election. And we're getting ready for that. No, what's going to happen is this church is going to, we're going to cling together better. We're not going to divide over race issues. Please, if you came from a black church or a white church, don't talk to me about a black church and a white church. What is that? If it's the color of the building, I got it. I'll follow you there. But come on, man. It's not about that. You can tell me about this traditional church you came from or this church you came from that was popping from back home, but I don't care about black church and white church. That doesn't exist. How about God's church? Look, we as Christ followers have forgotten how to resolve conflict. We just rather, if you make me mad, we just can't be friends anymore. That's insane. How about we commit to resolving conflict like adults and like Christ followers and like Jesus would? How about we commit to admitting when we're wrong? Commit to listening first. Be slow to speak, quick to listen, and then you will become slow to anger. Let's start to give people the benefit of the doubt and stop assuming that they have wrong intentions or, or assuming that, that they're worse than we are. Why don't we start assuming the best in people, that they have best intentions? Why don't we give people a break because their mother might have just been diagnosed with breast cancer a couple weeks ago, and we forget. We just think that our whole world... Look, I'm committed to this. Every Christ follower should be committed to this. Restore is committed to unity. I want to say this. You belong here. I don't care about your past. Well, I care about your past. But that doesn't disqualify you or qualify you here. I don't care about what you look like or what the color of your skin is. Actually, I do because it makes you a part of who you are. But that doesn't qualify you or disqualify you. I don't care about your sexual orientation or how you identify. I love you. And you belong here. There's some conversations you and I need to have, and I'd love to have them, but let's do it over coffee and assume the best out of each other and listen to one another. Is that fair? You know why? Because that's what the church does. That's what the people who love each other, that's what we do. We sit and we listen and we talk to each other. Um, I think about the church a lot. Right now I'm thinking about this red timer that tells me I'm over time. And it's getting bigger. So I'm going to respect you. Um, I think about the church a lot. Um, I love the church. I love what it looks like. When you love someone, you love them because of their good qualities, but you also love their bad qualities, right? 
and you love them through it. And man, I, I love the church. I've committed my life to the church, whatever form that takes. And I, I, I watch and follow the church worldwide. Y'all, the church is growing internationally like crazy. In America, we've grew, we, I think last year we grew by 2%. 71% of all missionaries are being sent to the United States. Let that sink in. We're a Christian nation. I think about the American church, and I grow sad. I'm excited about the international church, the world uh, as it grows, but I think about the American church, and growth is not our issue. Our issue is we've stopped becoming disciples of Jesus, and we've become disciples of the church. We care more about how many people are in the seats. And I'll go ahead and tell you today, just from standing on the stage, we'll be the largest attendance restored church has had ever outside of Easter. That's pretty cool. But that's all that the American church cares about. We've stopped committing ourselves to the things that Jesus committed himself to. Unity, obedience, and glory of God. And if we commit ourselves to those, we will see our nation change. We will see Jacksonville change because we'll see our families change and our marriages change and our work environments change because we don't care about popularity or fitting in or whatever else childish uh, things that there are. We care about God's glory, being obedient to him and the unity of the believers. And if we're going to know what's important to Jesus, we see it right here in this desperate prayer at the end of his life. Yesterday, I walked with a couple through Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And later it says, husbands, do the work of loving your wife just the way that Christ loved the church. So yesterday, I was thinking about this message and unity, and I didn't have a good conclusion and a wrap-up story, you know. Nothing compares to the Ethel and Fred story, so I was like, i got to come up with something here. And I just felt like a calm, peace, the Lord just say, man, just talk about the way that Christ loves the church. The only way that you and I can forget about skin color is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The only reason that we can forget our past and sit here together is because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The only reason that we can talk about really anything of worth is because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus did not die so that we can divide over petty stuff. Jesus didn't die so we can go to Facebook and fight over meaningless things or or whatever. Jesus didn't die to watch his church and the people who say they love him uh, not love each other. Martin Luther King once said that the 10 o'clock hour on Sunday is the most segregated hour of the week. Doesn't that make you sad? Christ died for us to love each other the way he loved us unconditionally. While Jesus was on the cross, he was watching people mock him, and he said, forgive them, Father, because they don't even know what they're doing. Adopt that and watch your life change. And so I, I just want to take a minute here at the end of the service and uh, 
Man, this is going to be weird. I, I don't do this every week, but uh, I'm going to just sit. I'm gonna, actually, I'm going to kneel. Because I feel like we as a nation need to repent in front of the cross of Jesus. And we as a church have got to repent for falling more in love with the church than we are with Jesus. And we as Christians have to repent for falling more in love with ourselves and our own comforts than we have with obedience. We as the church need to ask for forgiveness for not loving people the way that Christ has loved us. And the only way we get forgiveness from that is through the death, burial, and resurrection. Would you pray with me as we end the, we end the service, the sermon? God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I, I haven't loved people every time the way that you taught me to. God, I'm sorry for the hurt that I've caused in your name. God, as the church, we come beg you for your forgiveness because you, you have given it all for us. Lord, will you help us? Help us try to give you glory in every aspect of our life, our job, our career, our marriage, our family, our careers, our future, our college, whatever it is. God, let us give you glory. God, help us to be obedient and use your word to find what is true and what is not. God, as your church, we just pray for unity. We can find it in the living rooms of each other's houses, across the dinner table, at the, uh, at the coffee shop, whatever it is. Lord, give us opportunities for unity. But the one thing that unifies us above all things, Lord, is the cross. God, I'm sorry that I've taken it for granted at times. I'm sorry that I've looked on it as a, uh, I've looked on it with ordinary eyes as something that we just talk about. But God, give me new eyes to see it as an act of unity, an act of, of love of all people, an act of sacrifice in my place. Father, give us grace and discernment and wisdom um, as a church. God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.